Chasing happiness doesn't leave room for the spectrum of human emotions, but building a mindset that allows you to hold grief in one hand and joy in the other, that allows you to be present for all of life's emotions, the tragic, the beautiful, the high highs, the low lows. But when we are constantly seeking only the good feelings, whatever I, I quote, good feelings, it leads us to all kinds of sp- like places of grief and sadness. And, and on top of that, shame, because we're not feeling happy in those moments. And that was from today's guest, Cindy Spiegel. An amazing show for you today. And one, sadly, which begins with heartbreak. Cindy's nephew was murdered at the young age of 32. That was followed up just a couple months later by the passing of her mother. Shortly thereafter, her brother had a heart attack and was in the ICU only to be followed by her own cancer diagnosis a short time later. And all this in the peak of the pandemic. And yet... There is so much to learn, in part because Cindy's captured all this, her wisdom, the ability to manage and navigate this in a new book called Micro Joys, Finding Hope, Especially When Life Is Not Okay. And as I you know, sit here and think about my own experience, the pandemic, uh, the hardships, you know, personal ones that I've been along for the ride for my friends and family. It's just, it's a truth that sometimes life is not okay. And I believe culturally we have a hard time managing that. In the Western world, um, whether it's our inability or, or the, the fact that we have two lives, the one that present to the world, the one that we keep to ourselves, or if it's internet culture, or I think just generally so many of us struggle with the ability to process very, very difficult things. And let's be real, being a human is difficult. And how do we coexist uh, with uh, any sort of resemblance of a normal life? And these ideas are ideas that Cindy tackles in this particular show and in her new book, Microjoys, which we explore at length and uh, I feel like at a considerable depth in today's episode. This show is about experiencing pain, managing it, and I would say moving on to thrive in the wake of all of this sort of hard stuff being human. You're going to love Cindy. She is talented, heartwarming, um, authentic, real, and she has the ability to communicate this stuff in a way that I have rarely experienced. So uh, I can't wait for you to experience today's show with yours truly and Cindy Spiegel. Cindy, we made it happen. Thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Where are you hailing from today? It looks beautiful and bright and sunny in the background there, or relative to where I am, I guess. It is incredibly sunny and incredibly beautiful, and it's New Jersey. Lovely (laughs) New Jersey. Montclair, New Jersey. (laughs) There we go. Uh, our technical director, NASA, is in Mexico. We were just envious of her background. I don't know. I don't know. The <laughs> beach in the background there. Um, congratulations on the new book. Thank and I'm um, grateful to have you on the show. We have a bunch of mutual friends that we can mm-hmm. name drop and chat about later. But uh, today's <laughs> show is about you. And we are going to, again, cover this new book. But for the folks who may be new to you or yeah. your work, I'm hoping you can open a show with just saying a little bit about yourself how you orient yourself uh, professionally, personally, whatever you feel like you'd like to uh, impart to our audience this morning. Excellent. Thank you. So I am an author. I am a speaker first and also the founder of a community and a platform for women 35 and older called Dear Grown-Ass Women. Uh, And it's really about creating a space for deep connection for women. And prior to that, I really just started doing this in the past decade. I had a career in fashion for 17 years where I was an adjunct professor at Parsons in New York and also at FIT. So this was a complete pivot for me. And truly, uh, the work I'm doing today is the work I am meant to be doing in this season. And I'm just incredibly grateful for that. How did you end up focusing specifically, I mean, going from fashion to, you know, providing a, a community for yeah. women like what was the what was the the 
realization, the recognition that that was the work you were supposed to be doing? Yeah, it was it was circuitous for sure. You know, when I was 35, I left the fashion industry. I'm 45 now. It, that's only relevant to the community. Um, but when I was 35 and I left the fashion industry, it was spring 2013 Fashion Week. And I just knew in my heart that this was no longer the work I was supposed to be doing. Um, I had done a few yoga and meditation teacher trainings prior to that. And at that point, I was at the height of what I would be doing. I was traveling back and forth to Italy. I was doing these things that on paper um, were very cool, and they were very cool, but also they no longer aligned with who I was in that moment. And the first thing I decided to do was leave and figured I'd figure it out after that, because if I didn't leave, I would never figure it out. I can continue to get these really sexy jobs, doing all of these fun things, knowing full well that my soul wasn't in it. Um, and I do blame yoga teacher training for this because you can't unsee what you know to be true. And I remember one of the questions that was asked um, was, who are you without the titles? That is never a question I will have the answer to. But what I realized is that in that moment, I was only my titles. I was what I did. And I think that that is something that's sort of, it's, it's just so normal in our culture to be like you are the work that you do in the world and nothing else. And so that just became really clear to me. And I knew at that point that I had to leave. And so, uh, again, I didn't have a plan. This, this was never anything that I thought I would be doing. Had you told me a decade ago that I'd have published two books by the time I was 45, I would never, it just wouldn't have happened. This wasn't the plan. In fact, I didn't start writing until I was 35. These are all beautiful things. I'm going to put a pin and go back to the thing that you were just, there's like a, a, a door that you just opened up and I'm going to walk, you know, myself and our audience into that door, which is you, you said you just knew and then you turned this old life off yeah. and your new life on. I'm wondering if you can describe that because uh, to position this for you, our listeners are largely seeking to transform their lives to yeah. live the best life that they possibly can. That's one of the reasons that the show has been going on for 13 plus years now. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by these moments of transition, these moments of awareness. Yeah. So you said you just knew it was fashion week. You look around. I had a similar moment as a photographer, mm. you know, flying four helicopters into the New Zealand backcountry nice. with a crew of 112 and I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of bored. I'm mostly interested. Yes. Why am Why am I not at home with my wife? And uh, you know, whatever the thing is, these moments. But help us understand in in a little bit more detail how you did that. Because some people, you know, could you afford? Had you had a savings account? You could yeah. just turn that life on and turn this new life, you know, yeah. turn that life off and turn your new life on. Help us understand that moment. Thank you for asking that because particularly when it comes to the financial piece of it, I was living in New York City. New York City is one of the most expensive cities in the world. I did not have that. I came, I grew up in poverty. I talk about this a lot in the work that I do in the world. I had no one to go to and ask for money. Uh, I relied very heavily. I had savings at that point, some savings. Um, and I also dipped into my 401k, which again, I've talked about. I do not recommend that, but it's important that I share that because you know, we're all coming from different experiences when we do this. This was not, this was not something that I was set up for. You know, I didn't have the money. I didn't, my rent was $2,500 a month a decade ago. Like, and, and I remember very consciously making the decision that I would be willing to forego many things, but the one thing I wouldn't forego was my expensive apartment. Now I say expensive in quotes. Um, and the reason was not optics, but I knew that that was the one thing that would ground me. I couldn't move at the same time I was sort of upending my whole life. I needed to stay where I was. And so that was where I was willing to put the majority of my money. Um, and I think for any of us, when we are going to transition, we have to also be willing to forego something. And be really clear about that. Like, how long am I willing to forego this for? Um, and I had set out for myself, I said, within one year, I have to figure out something. And I don't believe that if I, or I do believe that if I didn't leave fashion, I would have just kept going. I would have never been doing the work I'm doing today. Yeah. yeah. Do you so feel I think part like, of it is tangible. Yeah. There's a, there's that tangible part. 
What about were there other people in your life that you had to share your transition with that you were interested in? Hey, I'm this is no longer I'm no longer the, the work that world. This chapter is over. And if you, you know, you have anything interesting, you know, share it with me. I'm open to new ideas. Like what kind of communications did you have with your friends yeah. and with your family? Uh, not a lot. <laughs> the truth is. <laughs> no, this is, but, this, this is why you're here. Is I want to no, know. No, you know, the truth is, is I didn't, this wasn't something that a lot of the folks in my community were doing. You know, it wasn't something I had access to. I think I opened an Instagram account like a year later. This was really brand new to me. And so I didn't have a lot of conversations. It was it was a choice that I made solely inwardly. Now, that's not to say I didn't talk to friends about it, but it certainly wasn't seeking advice so much as getting it out of my head and into the world. But I didn't have a lot of conversations because just as I said before, you know, spring 2013 fashion week, I'm in New York City at the shit, you know, at the 10th, I don't remember who was at the 10th at the time, but it was an inner knowing that this needed to happen regardless of what anyone else said. And I think at that point, had I gotten a lot of insight and had I did have, or if I did have a community to go to, it might've shut me down because I didn't know how hard it was going to be. And it is hard, but worth it to me. The best things in life, as they say. So I'm fascinated by this, this transition process, as you can probably guess from my, my questions. So at what point did you start exploring new stuff? And what did that exploration look like? Yeah, right away, I started exploring new things. So the first thing I did, I remember being clear that I would need some sense of purpose, meaning I couldn't just sit around my apartment. That was not going to work. Uh, and so I started teaching yoga and meditation classes in my apartment. Now, when I, when I say teaching, it was literally six women that would come once a week. I would make a pot of chai. And what, in hindsight, that did was it allowed me to get comfortable speaking in public and sort of being off the cuff. So in hindsight, it was really impactful. But I remember at the time not really understanding why I was doing this. Like, why are you teaching? You went from having this career in fashion and now you're teaching yoga to six people in your apartment every week. It was such a magical, pivotal moment that I just could not have planned for. And what was there, a, is this the seminal aspect of the community part of the work that you do now? There were yeah. six women? Yes, yeah, that's exactly how it started. Um, shortly after that, I had gotten a request from a former graduate school professor asking if I would come back and teach. So at the same time that I was teaching these yoga classes in my apartment, I also went back to teach at FIT and eventually Parsons. So this all sort of culminated in understanding the intuitive way that I teach. Huh. And again, 35 years, never having done this, to like within a year, I was teaching a lot and realizing how comfortable I was in that space and how impactful I was in that space. And there's so slowly, yeah. Please. Oh, sorry. There's just a huge takeaway there, which I, mm. I feel remiss not saying. And this willingness to explore and to yeah. say the person that you were yesterday is not the person that you have to be tomorrow is yeah. that is like this comes through in your work, obviously. And I don't want to go too deep into the, the book, A Year of Positive Thinking, but that you, the ability to rewrite our script is something that is endemic and it, it's like, it's natural to us. And yet culturally it feels so foreign. Were you comfortable from the very beginning in this or did this, was this a, a learned experience? No, this was learned. This was learned. I mean, this whole journey was learned. I'm still learning. Um, any of this, this ability to explore, I think, again, I came from a background that was very under-resourced. And for me, I knew from a very young age that education would be the way, right? And so I, I made sure that I came to New York City. I studied in New York City. But I think there was a certain amount of putting myself in the way of folks that would mentor and support me and help me to understand what I didn't know. 
Say from more the time that. that I was in college. Yeah. So making sure that even when I was in college, I went to FIT, but when I was in college, I remember joining a lot of communities or committees rather. Um, I was an RA in college, which in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, of course you were, Cindy. I was an RA in college, a resident assistant. But I remember always being really curious when a lot of my friends would want to steer clear of the professors and the adjuncts. I was always the one that wanted to stay after class and talk to them. I was often looking to learn, learn from different people with different lived experiences, because again, where I came from was so different than this life that I now had in New York City. And so I just continued to do that over and over again. I studied abroad when I was in college, but I've always sought new experiences. Um, But I would say what's been really learned for me is the ability to not tie myself to one thing and feel like I have to. Yeah. Not feel like I have to be an expert in something in order to do it. That is also very pervasive in your work. I want to pull a line that struck me um, from the intro to a book that we'll get to in a second, your most recent project called Micro Joys, Finding Hope, Especially When Life Is Not Okay. During our lifetime, we will encounter the full spectrum of experiences, the beautiful, the not so beautiful and sometimes the tragic too. There will be moments that unmoor us from ourselves, but alternatively, moments that propel us higher than we ever knew possible with gratitude and happiness. All of its impacts, all of it impacts who we become and how we move through the world around us. So if I'm a listener right now, what the question that comes up having covered the ground that we have so far in our conversation is how did you know How were you like, tell me a little bit about this. Was there some magical moment? Was it just a self-awareness? Was there doubt that, you know, ending your time in the fashion industry, reinventing, being the person who was willing to experiment, to stay after class and learn, be curious when maybe the community around you, your friend circle, that, that wasn't a dominant paradigm. How did you like, was this an attunement to some sort of internal dialogue that you had going on? And how did you recognize sort of truth for you? You know, as uh, so this really happened, I think, probably after, no, I would say in my late teens to early 20s was building a relationship with myself, you know, and eventually meditating and spending a lot of time alone, uh, journaling. I think a lot of a lot of who I am innately and a lot of what I've nurtured um, from a fairly young age was a relationship to myself. And I think by the time I was 35, I learned to trust my intuition. That did not just happen. It, it was a very, um, there were things, there were choices that I made, relationships that I had, friendships that I had, uh, work that I did, books that I read. It was really consciously about building this inner relationship that I don't always think we focus on. We're often outward. Who should I know? What should I know? Who should do this? And I don't know how I knew to do that or how I knew the value of that at a young age, but I did. Mm. Well, that probably contributed to your ability to put this in words for the rest Mm. of us to read. I've shared just a second ago, the title of your new book called micro joys. Um, I'd like to get into that work now and um, this, well, I'll, I will share with our listeners that prior to hitting the record button, we talked a little bit about specifically what micro joys aren't mm-hmm. and how that can be misunderstood just based on the title. Um, obviously, this this unfolds very clearly in the book. But um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what we spoke about before we were recording, the idea of micro joys and just being observant. I mean, that's the first, the first part of the book is, is basically about noticing about awareness. I think the it's called observing life is part one. Um, Mm -hmm. And that it's all not just fun and games, but orient us around this idea of micro joys and what it is and what it specifically is not. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Micro joys specifically are not small joys. And, and, you know, 
I didn't have a lot of thought when I came up, when I really started talking about microjoys. I didn't know this was a word that would stick, but it's microjoys are really the honing the ability to access joy despite all else, particularly during difficult times. Mm. So the way I see microjoys is the antidote to toxic positivity. You know, I talk, and you mentioned this, Chase, it's about this spectrum of emotions. Yeah. Micro joys and this ability to hone joy comes down to training ourselves to be able to access joy even when we are struggling, even when we are grieving. It's about giving ourselves these slivers of respite, even in the midst of difficult things. And I'll talk more later, I suppose, about how I got to this place. But really, for me, micro joys was it was a serious business of joy. You know, it was really not about going out into the world and finding small things. Absolutely. That's a part of it. But it was about me coming from a place of writing a book about positive thinking. And when the world when my world fell down around me, I could no longer tap into everything I knew to be true about positive thinking. I was empty. I, I just, I walked through the world differently. You know, there was tragedy. There was so much that happened that I couldn't have anticipated. And I remember feeling very guilty having written a book that impacted hundreds of thousands of people called The Year of Positive Thinking, that when I needed it most, I couldn't tap into it. This is no. where I, uh, this is where I want to excavate because the concept, yeah. if you ask anyone on the surface, do you find positive thinking valuable? I think mm -hmm. pretty much everybody would say yes, myself yeah. included. Um, yeah. You wrote that book and motivated all those readers to um, cultivate this in their life. Mm -hmm. And yet this in many ways is a follow-up, you know, yeah. your most recent work is a follow-up after you found yourself in a position where it was, there was a, a, a hole where yeah. otherwise sort of this, um, this this uh, voice inside of our head would take over and would fill our head with the positive thoughts that were on the surface very yes. valuable. Mm -hmm. But what made you understand that there are times when that's not just possible? Talk to us a yeah. little bit about some of the difficult moments that awakened you to um, realizing that you had to take a different approach. Okay, just so you know, I may or may not cry. It's not my fault. Uh, but there was a 10-month period of time in 2020. Now, mind you, we were in the midst of a global pandemic. This wasn't a Cindy thing, right? This was a world thing. In May of 2020, my 32-year-old nephew was murdered. Now, this was the week that George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. My 32-year-old nephew was walking to a friend's house. So everywhere on the news, we're hearing about Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And then my 32-year-old nephew was murdered, walking to a friend's house, completely random act. Um, shortly after that, which, which was unfathomable to me, he was only 10 years younger than I was at the time. Uh, he was born when I was 10 years old. This was like a little brother more than a nephew to me. Four months after that, my beloved mother passed away unexpectedly. Within a month of my mother's passing, my brother, who was 49 years old at the time, went into cardiac arrest and spent the next two and a half months in the ICU. Now, again, this was during the middle of a global pandemic. We couldn't visit him. So what that did was it left my brother, who had just lost his oldest son and his mother, and I to be the caretakers for our brother who was in the ICU, the intensive care unit. And we couldn't visit. So for two and a half months, for 10 weeks, we would call the ICU three times a day. We would go in shifts and we were really barely making it through life at this point. We were just walking through molasses, trying, I mean, literally one thing after the other. Gratefully, grace, like my, my nephew by the grace, my brother rather, by the grace of who knows who, um, did make it out of that after going through ICU psychosis and so many things that no one should ever have to know about. And as he came home, we thought, we meaning my brother and I, my husband and I, that 
everything was starting to settle. The dust was starting to settle, except I had finally started catching up on doctor's appointments because so many of us missed them during that first year of the pandemic. Uh, and I had gone for a mammogram and was diagnosed with breast cancer. So this is stuff that I just could not fathom in 2018 when I wrote a year of positive thinking. Now, I want to be clear, you know, it's not to say that a year of positive thinking is not valid. It is. But it always is about where we are. This isn't about one is right and one is wrong. It's where we are in those moments. When I wrote a year of positive thinking, I was in a really positive place. And I, I look back at that book and I think, oh, God, that's good. Sin, did you say that? So again, there's, there is validity to all of it. And I think similarly with microjoys, when I read microjoys now, I recognize that I would never be able to write this book again because I was in it. When we talk about all of the difficulty that I experienced, and and I also want to say this, Chase, uh, I am not special in this regard. A lot of us go through multiple losses. You know, this is not new to me, this accumulated loss. And the more I talked about it publicly, the more I realized how often this happens to folks. And we just don't always hear about that. And so this idea that many things will happen all at one time, I remember very consciously coming to an understanding that in this, I was not special. It happens day in and day out for all of us. And so I remember recognizing in myself that I wasn't the person that I knew myself to be prior to these experiences and I needed to find my way back. I shouldn't say back, but find my way whatever that looked like again. Because I today and going forward will never be the person I was pre-2020. Post-2020? Pre-2020. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of us. After my nephew died, I remember very publicly, I was raising money uh, to start a foundation at the time for mental illness, particularly for Black young men and boys. And as I publicly talked about my nephew, I remember starting to bring up micro joys and they were really tiny things. You know, I would tell a story about my nephew and then I would mention this beautiful thing that I saw that day or this beautiful memory that I had at that point. And there are different parts of the book and micro joys. Um, a lot of it is very memory focused. You know, everything is not about what's happening right now. It would be me. Um, thinking about a story with my nephew when we were growing up or, you know, how big his eyes were. And we would say that he had these saucer eyes on this little head. Um, and these became moments like these micro, micro joys. And I remember calling them that, not knowing that there would be a book or that this would go any further. If I did, truly, I would have come up with a different name because this really leads people to think um, that they're small. And these moments were not small. Mm. They were simply readily accessible to me, even during the darkest of days. Thank you for sharing all that. And right now there are people that are identifying with that time in your life. They may be there right now, or they may be in this process of excavating uh, and trying to find a way through these difficult times. Let So how did you go from living these difficult, you know, days, months, years to starting to find a way out. You know, this, the, the part one of the book, uh, again, I'm talking about micro joys, finding hope, especially when life is not okay. How did you start to, um, climb out of the difficult, this, you know, it starts with awareness, but if you could walk us through a little bit of your process, I think that would help people, um, would help people full stop. Part of what I did, now this is, this recording is happening in 2023, and I share that because, again, I'm talking about 2020. Yesterday was the very first, no, that's not true. It was the second event gathering I've been to since this entire thing happened. So almost three years. I am a public speaker. I am out in the world all the time. I build community for a living. The easy answer and the not easy answer is that I took a lot of time to just sit 
and figure my way again. You know, I don't want to say figure my way out or find my way back, but find my way home again. It took moving out of New York City. You know, I'd lived in New York City on and off for close to 19 years. We now live in Montclair, New Jersey, as we talked about in the beginning, sunny Montclair, New Jersey, which is fabulous, by the way. But it took moving out of the noise to truly find the space to sit. I have never sat for this long in my entire life. I've worked multiple jobs from the time I was 16. The truth is, is I spent a lot of years going inward and having to see the world differently and see the world not as Cindy Spiegel, the person that wrote this book, or Cindy Spiegel, the person on stage, or Cindy Spiegel, my, you know, old professor, not old, I'm not actually old, I mean former, um, just to be clear, but it was really that lesson that I learned in my 20s in yoga teacher training, which I'd never really connected until now, but it was sitting down with myself again and asking who I was without the titles and not pivoting quickly and saying, I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out. And instead, in my 40s, saying, I don't know, and I really need to sit with this. And so I some... gave myself, yeah, please. Oh, no, no, sorry. What, what are some of the things, what are some of the answers that you came up with to that question? Who am I without the titles? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I just, I'm, I'm oh. just give us some examples so the folks at home can yeah. do some of this work. Here's, Obviously the, de- the, the, the deep dive is required for the book, but just what's an example of an answer you came up with? Yeah, there were a few, right? Uh, one of them was, I am a teacher that cannot teach right now. And that's okay. Um, I am a grown ass woman who is figuring out what it means to be that today. Uh, I am a friend who can't be present. And I know these are titles, but it was the understanding to me that this well, they're not titles. In the, they're, not, they're not titles in the career sense, which is part of yes. that's what I took away from this is like, there's the like speaker or author or, you know, yeah. there, there are these like the professional titles, but yeah. these, to me, you know, from the book, you get this humanness, this, this yeah. sort of returning back to, um, to basics, the eschewing of all the cultural narratives. Mm. And the, the, yeah. Reconnecting. It was almost a returning back itself. to source. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you, Chase. No, that's good. Now keep going. Yeah. It was a returning back to source to whatever that is for you. It was really, going back to basics, you know, really rebuilding a relationship with myself again, because again, you know, for the seven years or five years prior to that, I was everybody else's person. I was, you know, I had pivoted. And when you're in the middle of transition, you're constantly, you know, you're trying to figure out what you're doing next. And I became everyone else's version of me. And the last few years, were me coming back to myself and realizing and recognizing who that was again. I am changed in many ways, but I am also the exact same person I was when I started this journey. And I needed to have the space to do that. And when I think about my time in New York City and our time now, and I think there's no way I would have been able to spend this time without distraction if I were still in New York City. The energy of the city just wouldn't have allowed for it, but here it's quiet and I was able to do that. And I wanna say that it's such a privilege to have been able to sit for three years and do nothing, but quite frankly, it doesn't feel like a privilege. It feels like I had to go through the hardest of things in order to force myself to sit. Yeah. And that doesn't have to be that way. What What of the the actual tactical like maybe even physical what are what of the most yeah. basic things did you find gave you the most space was it acknowledging that you were in a pandemic and this um person who made their living standing on stages and writing books and being out in the world was yeah. it the physical removal of yourself from the city and I'm looking for just a, you know, a couple very tactical things that someone who's listening could get yeah. a clue of, you know, how, what's the first or a powerful step that you can take to do 
the work that you're talking about, this real deep, introspective, thoughtful work? What are a couple of things that you found the most powerful? The first thing I did that I didn't expect to do was I asked myself this question. I said, Cindy, are you okay? That was it. And I came to realize very quickly that I was not okay. And I repeated to myself over and over and over again, I am not okay. I am not okay. I am not okay. Until I started bawling. Now that is not going to work for everybody. And I did certainly wasn't intended for me, but I think acknowledging in a world where we are constantly seeking other things that I was not okay was the very first step. Because as I said, when we were calling, you know, uh, the hospital three times a day after so much loss, there was no time to ask myself if I was okay, because regardless of if I was or I wasn't, work had to get done. We had to, to do our best to keep my brother alive. There wasn't time for that. And we will have those moments in our lives, you know, whether you're a new parent or you're starting a new career or you're pivoting and figuring it out or you've lost someone you love, but we will have these moments in our lives where we just cannot ask ourselves if we're okay, because it doesn't matter. When I say it doesn't matter, I mean, we're going to have to keep doing these things anyway. But when that moment, even if it's a short window of time, becomes available to us, we have to ask ourselves first if we are okay. And just acknowledging out loud that I wasn't okay allowed something inside of me to break open. And a grace that I have never had for myself allowed me to say, I am not okay and I can't do things the way I've been doing them anymore. And slowly doing things like sitting on a chair in my living room for two hours looking at plants. Now I know how ridiculous that sounds. I do not recommend that everybody go sit and look at a plant for two hours unless that sounds enjoyable to you. So I think for each of us, Chase, it will come down to what we have the space for physically and emotionally. For me, after I acknowledged that I wasn't okay, I did the simplest of things because that was all I could access. We moved to this beautiful space. You know, most of us who live in New York City are used to having these 500 square feet apartments and making, you know, making do. We have a bigger space now to live in. So I literally sat in awe of what was available to me. I sat in awe and I allowed myself to daydream. I allowed myself to consciously think about my mom, consciously think about my childhood, consciously think about my nephew. These are things that I think so many of us try not to do when we are grieving, when we are sad, when we are struggling, we try not to go there. And this is why I said earlier, you know, micro joys are the antidote to toxic positivity, because what I am asking the reader to do is what I also had to ask myself to do, which is go there, be in those difficult spaces. Think about the difficult things, the difficult experiences, because in, in allowing myself to be with those things, I was able to move through them. Right. Like I have conversations. I remember even then, tactically speaking, I would allow myself to have conversations with my mom. And I know that that's weird for a lot of people, but that was something very tangible that I could do because so much of where I was in that moment was understanding what I did have control over, what I could do, and then trying to focus there. I also recall making a point to go sit at cafes. Now, again, this was a pandemic, so we're all wearing masks at this point. I would sit outside. The weather was 45 degrees. I would sit outside anyway and watch the community, talk to strangers, um, and really allow myself to be fully present in those moments because one of the foundational pieces of Microjoy's presence is allowing yourself to be fully present in every moment with the relationships that you're in, walking through your day-to-day lives. Now, that's not to say that we are going to have the same level of attention in every experience, but a foundation of doing this, I I don't want to call it work, but really having this mindset of micro joys is 
knowing how to become present in a moment when you really need to give yourself this respite. And that may be thinking, speaking, doing, or simply not doing. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. That is beautiful. And I'm fascinated with attention and presence as sort of the key access points to what it truly means to be alive or to be a human. Um, there's a, a part in the book that uh, I had dog-eared here. Uh, and it really about, it's about journaling. And uh, the title of this section is A Pandemic Journal Entry for Difficult Times. So I'm wondering, in addition to physically moving uh, to a different place to sort of reorient you yourself, your psychology, this transformation that you were uh, going through, you, you, this idea of sitting outside of the cafes and being present, feeling, being present, feeling the wind on your cheeks and speaking to strangers. And as another tactic, what role did writing and or journaling play for you? Um, <clears throat> it played some of a role. I wrote when I, yes, I journaled. Um, but what I need to say about that is that as much as I journaled at moments, it was only when I felt called to, which is particularly what, what you're reading in the essay that's called the pandemic journal entry for difficult times. I have always been a very good student, right? I do what I'm supposed to, and I do it on time and I do the best I can. And I always have, and something that was different over the last few years was that I no longer held myself to the standard of saying I have to journal every day. When I felt called or compelled to journal, I did. And when I felt called or compelled to sit, I did. So I think journaling for me became important in the sense that I no longer felt like it was an exercise that I had to achieve and do perfectly. It was something that I did as I felt compelled to write, as I felt like I had something to say that needed to come out of my head and onto the page. It wasn't about me doing it right. This is, Which is new a, for me. <laughs> no, that's a, but I'm excited that you shared that because that is a, I think there's probably 50% of the people who are listening right now and they're like, ah, yeah, she yeah. got me on that one. <laughs> you know, the, many of us can identify with that. And this goes back to, there's a theme in our conversation, which is very clear in the book. And that is this willingness to trust the process, to trust that I need to sit, to trust. And there are lots of little voices or the people on our shoulders saying, wait, if you're going to journal, you got to journal every day. Yes. Wait, if you're, you know, and this is sort of the toxic positivity thing that you said that, that, you know, micro joys are an antidote to, um, how do you, how, how did you manage this voice, this, you know, 30 plus years of conditioning, 40 years of conditioning that you had telling you to do it the right. And if you were going to journal, then you had to journal every day. It had to look like this. If you're going to sit, you had to meditate. You had to put you know, a monk robe yeah. on and do right. all of these, this performance. How do you, how do you talk yourself out of that? And, and just in the face of all this conditioning. The most honest answer that I can give you is that I was broken open. Mm. I didn't have a choice. I was so broken. And, and that's okay. I want to say that too, right? Because we will yeah. all find these moments when we are just literally on our knees begging for all of this to go away. That's where I was. I didn't have a choice but to be imperfect. I didn't have a choice but to just put one foot in front of the other. Like, that was all I could muster. That was all that was accessible to me. I couldn't. I was so broken that I, I simply couldn't even. The idea of doing anything else was just impossible. Yeah. And then in those moments, we, we are often... We feel guilty and we feel ashamed because we've gone through life doing things perfectly. And then we reach these moments, these breakdowns that get us to a place where we can't do things the same. And we have to learn to accept those moments too and yeah. say that in this moment, none of the rules apply. 
That's it. No rules applied when I was in that space. And it was a beautiful surrender in the most active way, if that makes sense. You know, I I heard somebody say recently, you know, surrender is not passive. And that sums up that time. Surrender is not passive. You know, I fully surrendered in. I didn't have an option, but I also couldn't be passive. I had to physically do these things day in and day out, you know, go for coffee, make myself put on pants, make myself sit in a chair. It was not an easy transition for me to become that person because it wasn't who I've been. And so I think if, if that's at all helpful, remember that surrender is not passive, especially during the darkest of days, but that is what we're often called to do. Well, this is why this work I think is so important because these are not messages that we receive, you know, through childhood or in culture on the day-to-day moving through the world. And, you know, when I got acquainted with your new work here, this is, um, you know, these are not pleasant topics that are, you know, highlights on good morning America. And yet, you know, when you write a book as you have, it resonates so deeply. It's sort of like the work that Brene Brown did with vulnerability and authenticity and shame. It's just like, it came out of nowhere. And the ability to just be and to not be okay. And, you know, I'm hoping and guessing that this is resonating with a lot of people. That is part of the condition of being human. And you talked about this. I don't remember which chapter I was trying to find it while you were sharing uh, just a moment ago. I can't, but this, being a human is complex, right? And we can both, what it, what it allows us to do is both be, you know, have multiple states of being at the same time. We can both be, we can find a micro joy and we can be in the depth of grief at the same time. And holding those two moments or, or those two experiences, that is the experience of being human. And that's right becoming aware of that and, and leaning into those things to use some of your vocabulary, that's, that is sort of maturing. That is what it means to become more human. I'm wondering if, if this is me fishing or if, you know, how you would, your words are going to be better than mine about this stuff, but help me. help. You are 100% on point with this because something I talk about a lot in the book is we have to get comfortable living in the gray. gray. Most things in life are not absolute. We want them to be absolute because it's easier when somebody tells us how to do things or someone tells us what's right or wrong or what's a good feeling or a bad feeling. But most of life's experiences are neither. There is this wide swath of emotion and life that happens in between the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And we've got to get really comfortable in that space, that gray space. And that is what micro joys leave room for. You know, chasing happiness doesn't leave room for the spectrum of human emotions, but building a mindset that allows you to hold grief in one hand and joy in the other, that allows you to be present for all of life's emotions, the tragic the beautiful, the high highs, the low lows. But when we are constantly seeking only the good feelings, whatever I I quote, good feelings, it leads us to all kinds of places of grief and sadness. And and on top of that, shame, because we're not feeling happy in those moments. And what, what I really hope that folks walk away from this book with is a wider understanding or a wider perspective of the world and how we find joy and and how our joy is very individual to us, but it's also not a state we need to be in every single day. And the humanness of that, the humanness of accepting this wide open experience that is life allows us to really feel into those moments of joy when we can but also allows us to sit in the difficulty when we have to. Um, I, that, that's incredibly profound. And again, I, as I promised, your words are better than mine on that. The, so I, we have a 
my wife Kate and I have uh, some of our closest friends recently lost their 19 year old son. And to have been very close to them and to be present with someone who through that grief process, whether by hook or crook, like mm -hmm. these are not things that you want to have experienced, but to be able to observe someone who can be so overcome with grief in one moment and laughing hysterically in the next moment. I It was like watching grace in real time and yes. I for being so moved and obviously simultaneously just so sad and horrified by their loss, but then watching the human in their like most vulnerable, weakest, painful moment, be able to laugh. I just, it was, it's a, it's a depth of experience that I, when you witness it in someone else, it is so powerful. And that's, I kept coming back that these things were going on at the same time. You know, when I got your, your this advanced copy of your book here and this, this personal experience that I was living through with some friends and it helped me. It, having your book helped me understand that this was actually, this is peak humanity. Yes. So the question now, having shared all that, the question is, how have you been able, or have you been able to hold on to that humanity now having moved forward, having a lot of these things be in the past? You've written the book, you've put it on paper, you're helping other people do that. How do you hang on to that and not just go back to quote normal? Your friends who you just talked about um, could probably answer this quite similarly. Um, once you have experienced the depth of loss, you are changed. You can never go back. And so to answer that question is to say that th this is normal for me today. Five years ago, when I wrote a year, a year of positive thinking, that was normal. When you have experienced loss, tragic loss, death, illness, any, all of these things, your normal is different. My world, the lens that I perceive everything in is through a lens of micro joys. I no longer expect that I will be alive forever or that the people I love will be alive forever. I no longer, I believe in, in the foundation of my world is impermanence now. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I am able to appreciate things differently. You know, there's when folks say, well, that hit different, you know, everything hits differently when you've gone through these incredibly difficult times. Not only has your normal changed, but your perception of the world around you has changed. I am able to build relationships now with, without the privilege, I don't know if that's the right word, the privilege of pretending that this will always be forever with, with a deep understanding that everything is temporary, including the beautiful and the difficult. And what that has allowed me to do is to savor the relationships that I have, to enjoy that cup of coffee, to sit here for 10 minutes and read this newspaper article. It has allowed me to live every moment feeling things differently. So I will never go back to the normal that was pre-2020. This is it now. This woman that is before you, this woman that you hear, this is my normal today. And I think that many of us will feel that way if we don't already coming out of this pandemic. There's a new normal and this is it. Everything is temporary. I think that insight is worth the price of admission, the price of the book, and for people's time and, and, and listening to the show today. The the idea that um, 
that you are forever changed with new and profound experiences. Again, I, I, when we look, you know, all, all around us in popular culture in, in a time now where information moves so quickly, I do not see readily available the permission to think like that, that it's not, uh, that's not, it's not a part of the vocabulary of our culture. And again, this, my, my own experience of grieving with, um, personally grieving, grieving with our friends and um, reading your new work, uh, it was very helpful. And I want to personally thank you for writing the book, for doing this work. Um, I'm going to say the title one more time. Again, it's Micro Joys, Finding Hope, Especially When Life Is Not Okay. Um, I'm wondering, is there, are, are there other places, you know, you talked about uh, in the introduction, you talked about the communities that you're building. I'm wondering uh, if you could share with our community, our listeners, watchers, other other vectors, other access points to you and your work that, that you do in the world besides just the book, which we've been reading from and, and talking about. Yeah, thank you for asking that. Uh, I am certainly on social media, on Instagram. There's also uh, Dear Grown Ass Women, which is a community that any woman over the uh, age of 35 should feel free to join. I am there. It really is the only place I am outside of uh, speaking in public. But I think if you're on my newsletter or you follow me on social media, you will certainly have access to where I will be and how you can access me at any particular moment. And interestingly enough, I will say that that also came out of this difficult time, which is not feeling the need to be accessible all the time to everyone, but making it incredibly impactful when I am. So I hope that you all do come find me and say hello. Last question, because you just opened the door for me again. <laughs> this not being accessible, but being so present in the times where you are, is that a direct result of the experiences that you've gone through? Is that was that always a piece of you, or is that is that also a learned outcome of what you've been through? With without question, it is a learned outcome. Again, when you are on your knees and things are that hard, um, I believe in the work that I do. I believe in humanity. I only want to show up in ways that I know I can give all of who I am. And I've come to understand over the last few years, Chase, that as much as everyone feels like every one of us should be accessible all the time, whether it's through texting or Insta, you know, whatever it is, if we don't own for ourselves when we are actually able to be our best selves, then it will get ripped away from us because we will find ourselves being a lot of things to a lot of people and not who we are truly to ourselves. So yes, it was, it was learned. It was a very powerful lesson of the last few years. Well, for many of us, that's a great sign because it's a sign of hope. <laughs> we we <Yeah>. can learn, <laughs> craft some boundaries. Um, I was thinking that that might be the answer, um, mm. validating it. Thank you also for doing the work. Again, Microjoys Finding Hope, especially when life is not okay. Cindy, it's been an absolute pleasure and a treat mm. to have you on the show. Thank you for helping us understand that it's not it's okay to not be okay, uh, to have given us some strategies and um, give us your Instagram handle specifically. I, I blew it and I don't have it in front of me sure. right now. I can find you. It is at, at Cindy Spiegel, C-Y-N-D-I-E-S-P-I-E-G-E-L. Awesome. Awesome. And <laughs> grown ass woman, the, the community. Dear grown ass woman. Dear grown ass woman. I just, <laughs> I, I, that warms my heart to hear that. Thank you so much. <laughs> And you're more than you're more than invited, Chase. Just right, so you know, should you ever want to visit, please do. We we all need a little more divine feminine in our life. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, and until next time, those of us in this community, uh, from myself and Cindy, we bid you adieu until next time. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. 
please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. <music>